Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is not Tuesday, but we are at least on this week. We were doing so well. We had a run of a couple weeks in a row where we actually made the usual time that we're in theory supposed to record this. But hey, we're here. It's Wednesday afternoon, and it is time for another Draft Deep Dive. So I'm here, of course, with my co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Wednesday afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. I, I apologize that my life keeps disrupting our schedule, um, but it, it's definitely been my fault the last couple <laughs> times. To be entirely fair, but I well, all things aside, we 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 end up coming back. We end up recording anyway. So I, I I'm excited to talk about these guys tonight because I I think they're two pretty skilled and kind of underrated prospects. Definitely two underrated prospects and i certainly think they're underrated see as i've written sleeper deep dives about both of them but we are not here to talk about my sleeper deep dive today we are here to talk about first of all your piece on ej liddell your recent no ceilings article on ej liddell's shot blocking and it's funny because he has improved in a number of different areas this year over last year but his shot blocking ability has been by far the most dramatic of those improvements. And I think probably honestly also the most beneficial to his NBA future, just in the sense that rather than being sort of concerned about his defense as a relatively undersized power forward, now he has this shot blocking element to his game that really does benefit his defensive game overall. But what are your thoughts on what you have seen from EJ Liddell's shot blocking ability this season? Yes, I know. Obviously, as a Michigan fan, being this high on multiple Ohio State players um, is really making me question myself <laughs> and and my fandom and where my loyalties actually lie. Um, but I, I think it's just another testament to how good Liddell has turned into and how much of an improvement he's made year over year over year. Because I, at just six foot seven, and it feels weird saying just six foot seven, but that's not really a height we typically associate with elite rim protectors or shot blockers and you know i i don't expect liddell to be a full-time rim protector or elite shot blocker at the next level but at that height at his size at his strength he will be able to play some minutes as a small ball five but then also provide an immense amount of weak side rim protection and help side shot blocking that's going to be really really important for teams who throw a lot of different looks or teams like the Timberwolves who play high in the pick and roll and need that low man to come over and actually be a sturdy base down there, be a legitimate rim protector down there. And that it's a lot easier said than done to find those guys. So that this year Liddell had a block rate of 8.2 per, according to Bartorvik. And I believe he led the big 10 in total blocks and there are a lot of big dudes in the big 10. (laughs) And the fact that EJ Liddell is leading the entire conference in total blocks and has that impressive of a block rate at six foot seven is a real testament to his timing, his awareness, his instincts, his footwork, his balance, his strength, his ability to absorb contact and locate the ball and turn it away. It was all just really controlled and really measured. And just, he never really chased blocks. A lot of these guys get inflated block numbers because they're chasing every block aka Hassan Whiteside but that really gets teams in trouble because if you don't get the block then the guy's leaving his man wide open for an offensive rebound and that that just wasn't the case with Liddell he 
he timed his rotations perfectly. He waited for the ball handler to really commit to their shot. He didn't bite on fakes in the post. It was really difficult to move him in the post. So it was just an all-around, just composed and measured and stable um, skill for him that I think is going to be a real weapon for him in the NBA. So you mentioned the small ball five thing, and I think that's critical here with Liddell because in evaluating him last year, he sort of seemed like he was pretty positionally locked as a power forward. You know, he was nowhere near quick enough to be a wing defender, but also just not big enough and not enough of a threat near the rim to really be a center type. And this year, his developed shot blocking really, I think, opens up a number of different avenues for him in terms of his NBA future, just in the sense that he's a big dude. He's six seven, but he's also 240 and built yeah. just like an absolute brick house. And so, you know, he's going to be someone who teams are going to have trouble pushing around inside. And if he's a small ball five, you know, that sort of adds in the other element of his improved game where he has really grown as a three-point shooter as well. You know, he's someone who can space the floor, who can, if he's a power forward, you know, presumably punish smaller players on switches. If he's a small ball five, he's someone who, okay, he's not seven feet tall, but he's someone who you can rely on to protect the rim, certainly this year, a lot more than you could last year. Yeah, and I, when I say small ball five, and I think you're in the same camp, but we don't see prolonged minutes at that spot or him starting there. Just no, like I don't think center. he's at starting center, but right. if he plays there in spot minutes, in addition to playing most of his minutes at power forward, I think that's a really helpful look that teams can throw out there in certain situations. Exactly. It's just a really good change of pace to just really throw, throw off the opponent or provide a different look or experiment and just do different things. And he has that versatility. And and you, you mentioned that you don't think he has the speed to necessarily defend on the perimeter. And I, I agree for the most part, but the, the way he moves his feet, I think, is really controlled and measured. It's just consistent where he's always on balance. So the, the quicker guys will get past him with, you know, somewhat ease or at least throw him off his spot a little bit. But his use of angles and ability to recover and then strength to then knock the ball handler kind of off their path without committing a foul. I think that gives him a little more positional versatility than just defending in the post. And that's where, you know, the shot blocking even comes into play again, because he ha- he does have the footwork and the motor to recover from the perimeter to the rim and block guys out of isolation or pick and roll in just a bunch of different situations. Yeah, sorry, just to clarify, what I meant there is just sim- sort of similar to the argument that we were making about him as a small ball five. Yeah. I don't see him as someone who you're going to primarily throw right. on the wing, you know. I think that at the end of last year, if he decided, okay, I'm going to drop 30 pounds and work on absolutely nothing but my outside shot, you know, maybe that is an angle that works for him. I mean, he does move his feet pretty well on the perimeter, and that's something that's certainly useful, especially in a switching scheme. But, you know, I really just meant that he's not someone who I thought was going to be a primary wing player. And especially given how he's grown this year on offense, that was going to be more due to his defense than his offense, but he's not someone who you have to, you know, seriously worry about when he's guarding on the perimeter. He's okay. You know, he's, he's fine at it, but a, I don't think that's a good place for him to be primarily. And B, I just don't think you're getting the most value out of him. If that's where you primarily have him. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, the, the foot speed isn't, 
quite there to really defend on the perimeter. Um, but the footwork is, and I think that that footwork allows him to stay balanced. And I think, I don't know, everyone knows I'm obsessed with footwork, but that, that ability, <laughs> game, take a shot, tire the footwork. But that, that, that ability to stay balanced, I would take that over just raw foot speed with fl- sloppy footwork because it allows him to recover or flip his hips a little quicker to load up and contest a little quicker to, you know, find the right angle to recover. Um, so I think all of that is legitimate and will be a tool. And like you said, I think he'll be okay on the perimeter. I don't think he'll be great, but the fact that he, it kind of seems like he got stronger, which feels absurd because he was really strong last year and just got even stronger this year. I think that was a really smart route by him to take because like you said, having him in the post, having him as that weak side, low man shot blocker, that is where he proved he can make a real impact defensively because those rotations are really well-timed. Um, having that extra strength makes sure or ensures that he he's not getting bumped off his spot when being back down or when a guy goes into his chest, he can absorb that contact and the ball handler is taking the brunt of the damage there and he doesn't recklessly swipe down and foul. Um, so I, I think that you, you reference that, you know, maybe he would have lost 20 pounds and looked to become more perimeter oriented. I'm really glad that he didn't and that he just I am too, focused to on. Yeah, I know. I know you are. And that he just focused on being an actual center in the NBA who now has the versatility to play a bunch of different positions in the NBA. You mentioned him getting stronger. And I think that's a very, very important point. I mean, he was strong for a college player last year. Now he just looks like he's going to, you know, go to the NBA and be one of the stronger, bulkier, harder to push around power forward types pretty much right away. And especially given how the rest of his game plays out, I think that's going to be hugely beneficial for him to be, to be that bulked up, to be someone who you can rely on, not just as a rim protector, which he's shown dramatic improvement in terms of that this year, but also just someone who you can't push around, who especially if you're going to play him some minutes as an undersized center at 6'7", you know, the fact that he's got such a solid base is going to be huge for him to be able to defend at the NBA level. Yeah, and we, we also see that that strength and that lower body strength in particular um, with his rebounding because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he can really move guys in the post, guys who are a lot bigger than him, guys he should have no right moving, and he just puts them wherever he wants them because he puts his big ass into their hips and just gets them out of the way. Um, so that th- that strength just allows him to do a lot in the post that guys his his size really just should have no business doing. Which, you know, is also going to be huge for his ability to play those small ball center minutes. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the fact that he's gotten much better at being a rim protector, but, you know, this is an asinine comment to make. But, I mean, you're only making blocks on so many shots, right? You're not blocking, even the best shot blockers are not blocking 50% of shots. And you mentioned Hassan Whiteside earlier, and I think that's instructive in a different way beyond just the fact that EJ Liddell doesn't leap at every shot blocking opportunity possible and get a bunch of stupid fouls that way. But the other thing with Hassan Whiteside is he's a seven footer who's ridiculously athletic and EJ Liddell is a good athlete. I think I don't think he's bad athletically by any means, but he's not a absolute athletic freak like Hassan Whiteside or Jalen Duran in this, in this class. Right. 
you know, he's someone who does need to rely on that great footwork and good anticipation down low to be able to make that much of an impact on defense. Yeah. And the, when I was putting the piece together, um, what, what really stood out to me besides the raw shot blocking numbers, which at his size are the, the initial like punch in the face, like, okay, this is something legitimate. Um, it was how patient he was when he was down there or, you know, when he was protecting the rim because he just never bites on fakes. And well, obviously there never is a bit over the top, but he, he's really just, he's patient. And the way that he, it's like he's in the, the ball handler's head and he knows when they're going to shoot. And it's like, okay, you're going to pump here. You're going to shoulder fake here. And now you're going to shoot. And the, the clip that really stood out to me a bunch was the one that I used with Paulo, where Paulo used, you know, a series of moves of jab steps into a baseline spin, into a spin back to the middle, into a shot fake, and then a fade. And Liddell met him at the apex, apex of his jumper and stayed with him the entire time. And Paulo used that kind of similar move all year to get whatever shot he wanted because he was a monster in the mid range. And Liddell was like, no, I'm going to read you like a book and meet you at the very apex of your jumper, which is just absurd timing. Um, you know, maybe he just read an incredible scouting report. Um, but it's just really knowing his opponent and knowing how, when and where and how to react to their movements. is just a really special skill that we do see from the best rim protectors. Those are some of my favorite defensive possessions beyond just the sort of highlight blocks is just mm-hmm. the possessions where it looks like the defender is just looking in a mirror and just copying absolutely everything the offensive player does. And obviously going back to the Kings, well, just watching Davion Mitchell on the defensive end, you know, yes. very different defensive player from EJ Liddell, but you just watch him defend guys. And it's like, you know, just from watching, he has watched so much film on these guys and he knows exactly where they're going to move. And He's got the anticipation to keep up with them when they make those moves. And it's really just, it's almost like a dance, you know, when they're watching them just copy the offensive player exactly and shut down every avenue they attempt to follow. And it's something like, you know, we we always, the whole point of this is equating it to how is it going to translate to the NBA? And we've seen that from guys on like the Celtics this entire postseason where they're Mm -hmm. really locked in. They have that strong foundation of footwork and strength and they're mirroring their opponent's movements and meeting them at the apex of their jumper or contesting or really making those well-timed rotations so it it, these aren't block numbers where it's okay he's just coming in late from the weak side every time and turning away a bunch of layup attempts from undersized point guards it's he's doing some of that but then he's also bodying centers in the post and blocking their hooks he's staying with elite ball handlers in the mid-range and timing his block to perfection to meet them at the apex of their jumper so it's just the variety and the just you know i've said it a few times now but the composure and how he's just always grounded in what he's doing and never out of control it's so stinking impressive you mentioned the Boston Celtics, and this is an unfair comparison for multiple reasons, but also one that I think kind of works in a way is whenever I watch Marcus Smart defending big men, it's like, you know, he is someone who is great at anticipation, who isn't the tallest guy in the world, but is incredibly strong and fights really hard, both on the glass and whenever he is forced to rotate down low. Obviously, it's a different thing with Smart being more of a primarily perimeter type player, but 
I don't know. There is, I think, something in that, you know, when you're talking about these six four to six seven guys who are, you know, put into battles down low and manage to keep up and dig in with whoever they're defending. And, you know, again, the most recent defensive player of the year is, I think, a bit of a high level cop for EJ Liddell, but I don't know. There is, I think, I think there is something instructive in looking at the Celtics and comparing just how well they anticipate on defense to how well Liddell anticipates on defense. Yeah, and, and Grant Williams is another guy that I see for. Yeah, that's get, probably a better comp, comp, to be honest. Um, and I, but but I think your point with Smart's, um, you know, low post defense is re- really important because obviously the added the improved strength that we mentioned earlier with Liddell helps with that, but there's a lot of technique and balance that goes into defending guys because he, he has this lower center of gravity and he gets under these bigger opponents and just doesn't let them get to their spot. And that's because he's getting lower in his stance. He's getting under them. He's leveraging them appropriately. And a lot of that stuff is kind of similar to what smart does. So yes, I know you're not saying they're, you know, apples to apples in terms of players, um, but that that use of technique and leverage in the post is really similar. So we've talked a lot about EJ Liddell's defense because, of course, your article was about his shot blocking. But I do also want to touch on his offensive game briefly because, again, his improvement on the defensive end was certainly well, not really on the defensive end as much as just pure shot blocking. But his improvement on that end was impressive. But His improvement as a three-point shooter this season was also very helpful in terms of projecting his NBA future, you know, from being a 34% shooter last year on just under three attempts a game to being a 37% shooter this year on just under four attempts per game. And that's with sort of a cold spell from deep down the stretch run of the season. And the other thing with him, I mean, we've talked about his strength and his base quite a bit in terms of his defense, but that's also helpful in terms of his post-ups. I mean, he posted up 28.5% of the time and ranked in the 87th percentile per synergy, put up 1.036 points per hundred possessions in the post. And I don't think any NBA team is going to, you know, rely on him as a post scorer. There are very, very few players in the NBA who are relied on as a primary post scorer, but you know, in that sort of matchup game, he's someone who can really take advantage of smaller guys being put on him. And that combined with his huge improvement as a three-point shooter makes me a lot more willing to sort of believe in his offensive game, even than I was last year. And I was pretty in on him as an offensive player last year. Yeah, his offensive game, I think, is really fascinating. Um, the The shooting improvement this year was so important for him because I mean, at his size, he's not going to be a traditional post player and you know we don't really even have those anymore regardless of size um but it makes him so much more versatile as a screener um i i think his screening may be my favorite skill of his i know that's super niche um and obscure but he is such a good screener and the fact that he is a reliable option out of that pick and pop or slipping those screens now is incredibly important because He's not that vertical spacer. He's not a rim runner, and he's not going to be much of a threat on the roll in that sense. But before, when he couldn't really shoot at a reliable level, all you had to do was kind of negate him out of that short roll. And 
he was still really skilled. He still is really skilled in that area with his footwork, his floater, his ability to kind of get to the rim still or pass out of that. But now the teams are really going to have to worry about him as a shooter. Um, There's still a really, you know, there's still improvements he still needs to make as it, and his shot is still kind of flat. But I, I do think that the improvements were legitimate. So the fact that defenses now have to worry about the shot as well as his skill out of the short roll, it, it's just another look and another option that he provides that, you know, not all six, seven absurdly strong power forwards can. And just go look back at every, you know, the pick and rolls that him and Malachi Branham ran this year. I was, and they I was were about to say they were a thing of beauty. And Malachi Branham, I think, is a really good ball handler. We've talked about him plenty on here. But with, you know, an actual NBA point guard, I just imagine that a lot of the pick and rolls that he can run at the next level are going to be really, really gorgeous. And he's no Trevion Williams or anything, but Liddell also, I think, showed decent improvement mm-hmm. this year as a passer. And, you know, his being able to pass out of the post is one thing, but now that he's improved his shot, you know, he's going to have more opportunities with the ball in his hands on the perimeter and his ability to make solid reads out of that, I think also is going to be helpful for him just because he's got such a great skill set in terms of complementing many different kinds of players when he's in the lineup with them. And I think improving as a passer would really be the final sort of skill to unlock in that toolkit for him. And he's already solid on that front and certainly gotten better. But that, I think, is one area for improvement that would be fascinating to see from him. Yeah, I think he's competent. You know, um, I I wouldn't highlight his passing out of a short role as awesome uh, or like Jalen Williams or Travion Williams. But I, I think it's good enough where he at least has the awareness to look for that corner shooter or the cutter um, when he does get cut off by the low man. So I think it's fine. I, I I don't think it's a huge skill, but it's certainly not a liability where, you know, all you have to do is cut him off because if you do, he has the awareness and IQ to know where his teammates going to be and know where that, you know, secondary defensive rotation is likely going. Um, so I think he can counter it. He's not going to wow you with his passing from there but i i don't think by any means it's a liability or you know something that is like oh this needs to improve immediately yeah no i didn't mean it in that sense i just meant i think that he can go up another level if he really does develop as a passer but i mean i think you put it perfectly he's competent which given the rest of his skill set is all he really needs to be but if he gets a lot better you know that's another whole level that he could unlock yeah, exactly. It, it's the the next step that we saw him kind of take with his offense this year with the shooting and the, the shooting made him even more versatile as a player and just improving that passion and the ball movement, just ha- having that reliable of a screener who can score in a bunch of different ways and then a- adding on a really high level passer out of the short roll. It, it's just so important for big men and rollers and screeners and a lot, a lot of NBA guys either take a while to get there or just don't even ever get there. And they become really just one-minded in that role. Yeah. And certainly one thing that should not be said about EJ Liddell is he is a, not a one-dimensional player by any means. No, no, on both ends of the floor. It's the, the versatility is just, it's astounding. So speaking of versatility on both ends of the floor, let's move on to the second player that we're going to talk about today. So my most recent article over at No Ceilings was on USC Trojan big man Isaiah Mobley. 
And he is someone who is pretty clearly in the second round pick range, but I think I'm a lot higher on than most people just because I have him in the high 40s at this point. And with Mobley, I think really what it is, he is a really interesting offensive player who's got one of the best handles at his size of anyone in this class. And he also is a really good passer for a big man. And basically, I mean, he led USC in points, rebounds, and assists per game this year. He was the alpha and the omega of that team. And I mean, they were ranked fifth in the country at one point. And when Mobley cooled off down the stretch run of the season, USC cooled off right along with him. And the thing with Mobley, just to start with his offense, he's a pretty solid shooter. I mean, he, you know, finished 35% from deep, 76 percentile as a spot-up shooter. And he definitely will be relied on more, I think, as a three-point shooter, stretch four type than as someone who's going to be running the offense like he did at USC. But I think his combination of handle, passing gifts, and shooting are really intriguing, especially in the middle portion of the second round, but I'm certainly higher on him than some. I mean, he, some people don't think he's going to get drafted at all. Other people have him as like a late fifties type pick. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on Isaiah Mobley, since I'm clearly higher on him than consensus. And his, his ball skills are obvious and they're, they're really exciting because when when he just grabs that defensive rebound and doesn't hesitate bringing it up, bringing the ball up it's like oh okay so this is a thing and he's just super comfortable and fluid with it um the the passing is really intriguing at this point i i think i would rather see him just return to school for one more year and really kind of dominate as a scorer too um i think the shot will get there i think the the passing touch and the interior scoring touch is encouraging that it that can all develop and, you know, expand to the three-point line. Um, my my bigger concern with him is on the defensive end, and I'm not sure how much rim protection he actually provides. Um, it's kind of the inverse of Liddell in that instance, I guess. Um, I, I, can't, I oddly like him more as a perimeter defender, and just the way, the way he moves his feet, he kind of moves like a wing. Uh, a hefty wing, but a wing nonetheless. Um, but th- that lack of rim protection kind of worries me. So if he's not going to show that, which is a really hard, you know, skill to develop, and it's okay if he never does, but if he never develops that or shows that, then I just want to see a little more from him in the scoring department, um, mainly with the outside shooting, because the passing and the ball skills and the interior scoring, I think, are enough to be really intrigued by him but if if that outside shooting's not there if he can't space the floor at a really legitimate level and he can't really protect the rim i just get hesitant on how much of a role and you know how he fits into most rotations the rim protection is definitely a very sizable concern with him and that's something where i think he's almost exclusively if he's going to be used at his best i think he's almost exclusively going to be used as a switch guy who you rely on to switch out onto smaller players on the perimeter whenever he has to he can keep up with them and you know he does a decent job of staying vertical near the rim in the post but he's not a shot blocker at all and yeah 
I think that if you're relying on him as a center, you're going to have problems. I think if you bring him in as a power forward type playing alongside a shot blocker down low, that will be a much better look for him. Now, granted, all of that said, we just spent the first 25 minutes of this podcast talking about how exceptionally EJ Liddell developed as a shot blocker. So it's not out of the cards for Mobley or for anyone, but definitely I think that the concern about his ability to protect the rim is a huge part of why he will fall past the 45 range in the draft if he does end up falling there, which seems like he will. As for the shot, I'm much less concerned about that than I was last year. And not just because he improved from 55% at the line to 68% at the line, you know, as a partial free throw truther, but really more because he upped his attempts to almost four three-pointers a game this year and shot 35% on them. And I think that is a lot more instructive than him shooting 17 for 39 in 2020 and 2021, which, you know, okay, 44%, but also 39 attempts. I mean, time and time again, I have raged against the dying of the light on this podcast about how Derek Williams should not have gone number two (laughs) overall because he made 40% of like five three-point attempts. I mean, the fact that Mobley has upped his volume that much and is still in the mid-30s, not to mention his improvement as a free-throw shooter, I think is hugely encouraging. So, I am very willing to buy in on him offensively as someone who can stretch the floor, someone who's got a great handle for his size, someone who's a well above average passer for his size. And so on the defensive end, I think if you rely on him as primarily a switch guy, not primarily as a rim protector and on offense, you just sort of let him use his really wide variety of skills on that end as best as possible. I think he's someone who could really surprise people down the line as someone who ends up being much better player in the NBA than we might have thought based on his draft stock. Yeah, and, and his kind of you know archetype um, feels too simplistic labeling it like that, but it, it reminds me a lot of Najri. And Najri isn't really a rim protector, but he's skilled and he's proven he can shoot and he's that more offensively minded. So I'm not saying there's not a spot for him in the league, but when you just kind of look at the, you know, environment of backup centers and who sticks, who doesn't, a lot of teams end up going for more, those more defensive oriented guys. So I, I'm not saying he's not an NBA guy. Um, I I'm just a little hesitant on guys leaving when they when they could stay, show a little more, and really kind of cement what type of player they would be instead of taking the chance and NBA teams not really knowing what to do with him. So, I, you know, maybe it's more of an indictment on how NBA teams use big men and less on Mobley himself, even though, you know, I, I would like to just see a little bit more from the shot, um, but I'm with you that I buy it long-term. The, the, the improvements, I think, are real. The touch in the, you know, the rest of his offense, um, I think is a really good indicator of how the shot will come along. Um, but when we look at the centers across the league, there are very few of them who have kind of the, the skill set and offsetting skills that Mobley does. It's fascinating to me that clearly we disagree a lot more about his defense than his offense. I thought his offensive game would be a bit of a tougher sell, but I mean, I get the concerns about his defense in terms of his rim protection, but I don't know. I mean, I think he could do a lot of damage in a switching system defensively, especially if you 
maybe part of it is I think of him more as a four than a five, mm. which, you know, also I think makes it less of an issue that he's not that great of a shot blocker. I mean, clearly that's his biggest limitation on the defensive end, but I don't know. I mean, he does a decent job of verticality around the rim, even if he's not pinning shots on the glass or anything like that, but really his mobility and, you know, ability to switch on the perimeter, not to mention that he was the quarterback of that USC defense the entire season. And, you know, particularly he did not have a great game in USC's tournament game against Miami, but you know, he was the one directing the USC defense throughout that game. And the fact that they were in it at all, I think was really more due to Mobley than anybody else, even though he had a relatively poor game by his standards. Yeah. And it, the fact that you're viewing him more as a four isn't really something I considered um, at all yet. So, you know, on the infinite rewatches we end up doing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to take that approach because I I do like his perimeter stuff and you know just the, the the way he moves his feet on both ends is is really impressive for his size. So yeah, I'll have to kind of pivot how I'm looking at him and take him out of the role he was put in and try and envision him and you know playing a different style, kind of you know how I'm trying to do every time I watch Jalen Williams from Arkansas mm-hmm. because. That's a whole nother can of worms. Um, yeah, but but yeah, and like the 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 IQ, the awareness, the the footwork, the mobility, I think is all really impressive. So it's it's just the the that lack of rim protection really hangs me up. Um, but at, n- next time I do that watch through, I, I think that'll be really interesting. Switching to you know, okay, what if he's a four, a, a you know, an oversized four here instead of a five and that, that, that very easily could change how I I project his defense. And I think it is similar in a way to Liddell in the sense that I think that even though he can, you know, maybe be a small ball five, if he has to in stretches, I ultimately think that the best use of his particular skill set is probably going to be at the power forward spot. And if you look at his defense more as, okay, he's not the primary rim protector, but he's the guy who's going to be roving around on the defensive end. I think that does I think that does a better job of sort of showing where his defensive ceiling can be and you know if you're thinking of him as someone who isn't going to be primarily a center type you know I don't know I think that would be a better use of his skill set than just positioning him in the paint and saying okay try and be our rim protector and I think he does a decent job without being like a shot blocker type around the rim, but I don't think that's his strongest suit on the defensive end. And ultimately I think his best avenue to NBA success would be if he is more of a power forward type. Yeah. And I, we, we saw it. I'm not comparing them as players necessarily, but we saw his brother just do that this year with Cleveland and saw a ton mm-hmm. of success. And obviously Isaiah's bulkier and a, a bigger player, but they, they move in similar ways and they have that similar fluidity and lightness on their feet. So yeah, I'm definitely not ruling it out. And if there are teams who, you know, and everyone kept saying that big men are being phased out, but it's like, no, it's unskilled big men are being phased out. And it, you know, if you can have this versatility with the size, which Mobley does provide, it's definitely an interesting route. If teams do look to kind of, implement a two tower system um with a lot of skill so yeah that that that's really fascinating and you you kind of broke my brain on this right now which i i don't appreciate 
Wow. Okay. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that kind of praise slash insult at the end of the podcast. (laughs) I'll take it. No, but I mean, I think part of it also is just, I'm higher on Mobley than most, but Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty unlikely that he gets drafted above like say 45 or so. And I think that, you know, when you look at that range of the draft, I mean, the number of players that even make it to the NBA at all is pretty slim. And with Mobley, I mean, I think that there is a very clear role for him as like a 10 to 15 minute a game bench big man who can do a whole lot of different things and fit into a whole lot of different contexts. And, you know, when you're looking at that point in the draft, like 45 through, I mean, 58 this year, really, but, you know, 45 through 60 range, you know, there are a lot of playoff teams in that range who just need one more guy to fill out their rotation. And I think there are a number of different teams, certainly, Certainly the Sacramento Kings could use an Isaiah Mobley as a second round pick. And, you know, there are a lot of upside swings in that range that I think have a higher ceiling than Isaiah Mobley. But as we've been talking about, you know, his skill level on both ends of the floor is really impressive. And the way he moves on both ends of the floor is really impressive. And maybe he isn't ever more than a 10 minute a game player, but I think a lot of teams could use him as like a third big man or not third, more like a fourth big man, but you know, in that kind of a role. Yeah. And I, if if you're playing 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes a night, you know, that it's an important role off the bench. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think he ends up staying in the draft? Mm. I, man, that's really tough. I think that, he probably doesn't, but I think that, I don't know. I mean, part of it is that, you know, this was a bit of a breakout year for him. I mean, he ended up being, you know, all Pac-12 first team was a award candidate all season, basically. I mean, he had a really, really great season. It just didn't end well. And so part of me thinks, you know, if he goes back and has a spectacular senior season, then maybe the people who were a bit sour on him because his season didn't end all that well will change their minds. But I mean, the other side of that also is, especially for upperclassmen players who just have breakout seasons, I think that is usually the right time to declare for the draft. And he wasn't an upperclassman at the time, but we said very strongly last year, Johnny Juzang should declare because his stock is never going to be higher than this. And sure enough, it has plummeted since. So I don't think Isaiah Mobley is that kind of player at all, to be clear. It's hard to find two more different archetypes, honestly, than Isaiah Mobley and Johnny Juzang. But I think that it will really depend on what NBA teams think about the stretch run of his season. Because if they're willing to put less of an emphasis on that, then they'll probably be more likely to be willing to draft him earlier in the second round or willing to draft him in the second round. Whereas if he goes back and has a less strong season, you know, that's a bit of a problem. Flip side again from that, though, of course, is that him leading USC in all three major statistical categories this year implies that if he goes back for another year, he's probably going to have a pretty big role again. So, you know, it shouldn't be if he is the kind of player that I think he is, which I think he is. That's kind of the point of that statement. Then, you know, he should be able to have another really strong year next year. But it's also hard for me to say, I think the right move is going back right after you have your breakout season. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm lower on him overall than you are, but I, I I just I would love to see him come back for another year and just dominate, especially as a scorer. I know he led the team in scoring, but I'd like to see him just take that to 
another level. But I, I, I think if he ends up staying in, I think that's a sign that he either a got a second round promise or like ha- has basically a deal intact as an undrafted guy um, and has already a landing spot, which could be encouraging as a team who may not have draft picks in the second, but they lay out a, a clear plan of how they want to use or develop him. So I, I, I do think that if he ends up staying in, it's going to be because he has something already in place. Um, but yeah, I, I, I personally, I would, I, I would prefer to see him come back for one more year. Yeah, I would definitely agree that if he does stay in the draft, it's probably because he has a promise from somebody. And honestly, there are a lot worse promises you can make in like the 50s range of this draft, or even in terms of undrafted free agent contracts. So it'll be interesting to see whether he stays in or goes back to school. But if he does stay in, I think it'll be because someone told him, you're going to end up on our roster, you know, whether it's second round pick or a drafted free agent, we are going to give you a deal of some kind. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more guys kind of push away from being second-round draft picks and just going straight to the undrafted route and essentially picking where they want to go. So it could be a benefit to him in the long run to just be that undrafted guy if he can essentially force his way you know, to the organization that he wants to go to. So it will be really interesting to see what he kind of decides to do, because I I do think it will be really telling um, on what NBA teams tell him. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Would you plug your piece for this Friday, please? Um, I sure, well, I will have something coming on Friday and I believe it will be on Jaden Hardy's passing, uh, not his scoring. I wanted to focus on, more of kind of a secondary skill with him. The The scoring is really encouraging. I know he got off to a pretty rough start, but as someone who went straight from kind of crummy high school ball straight to playing against guys trying to feed their families and who are grown men, um, I think that the, the, the growth that he showed over the season was really encouraging. So if you were out on him early, I get it, but I implore you to go back and revisit how he ended the season because it it, it was really impressive growth from him. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T M E T C A L F one, one, and you can check out his work on no ceilings NBA, as well as of course, over at hashtag basketball and Candace Hoopas. Definitely agree with you on the Jaden Hardy point. He's someone who showed really interesting improvement throughout the course of the season. And I'm someone who is, very low on his archetype generally and was pretty low on him earlier in the season. So I think that is very important to note that he did show that improvement over the stretch run of the season and definitely will be looking forward to reading your piece on Friday. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can also find my work on No Ceilings NBA as well as at hashtag basketball and Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. Always very much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.